there it is. You know, when we gather together, or we don't gather together, and we all approach or seek to approach a God, God of the Bible, there's, there's a place and there's a means in which we should do that. And, and it comes from a place of confidence and declaration. You just heard it in that song. You, you see, we, we don't need to approach God with, uh, well, you know, if you don't mind or if you, you can get to it or I'm not really sure. You and I are called to come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain Mercy, we, we are a people who, who are called to seek God and seek him with all of our heart, not our doubts, not our fears, not our trepidation. There's, a, there's, a, there's an arrogance you can have, but there's also a confidence, a confidence that he is who he says he is. He'll do what he says he will do. He's a covenantally faithful, promise-keeping God. I think he responds to that kind of declaration that you are here, you are listening, you are gonna speak to us, this is your word, you are who you say you are, and you will absolutely do what you say you will do. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's everything right with that. It happens to be a part of what we're talking about today, in part, and this is a subject in which, I guess if every pastor really had the time to sit down or took the time or made the time to sit down and really think about, as a shepherd, what are you feeding this flock? You, you could not go too awful long, not really, not go too awful long and, and, and withhold this particular field to eat from, this particular grass. It is um, unlike any other grass, any other field that you would leave sheep to eat from. It is... It is uh, it, it has something about it. Maybe it's not only the taste, it's the, the results of eating this particular grass on this particular subject are, are uh, unlike any other subject. If you've ever preached on this particular uh, topic, you, you realize that inherently the topic is unlike any other topic. Like you could, you could preach a hundred sermons or a thousand sermons and these particular sermons that are on this particular topic come across differently, they're delivered differently, they come from a different place. They come from a different place within you, they come with a different importance, they come with a different vitality. They, they impart life unlike any other message. And what is that? It's the diet that you have to give a flock every now and again before to, to not do it would leave you spiritually anemic. It would leave you anemic. It would be hostile to withhold this topic from a congregation over time. It has to be revisited. It has to be infused into what it is we say and do. Is it the kind of message that afterwards you say, well, now after hearing that, I'm gonna go do something? No, it's not intended to do that. It does everything. You do nothing. It's a, it's a topic that has to be stressed, cannot be ignored, and, and it has to be appropriately uh, delivered and, and, uh, and served to people who are understanding its importance, which I'm trying to get through to you right now. It's very important you understand the importance of this topic because it's more important than any other topic. Any other topic. And what is that? The blood of Christ. That's it. It's in its own category. 
it's, it's delivered and talked about at its own level. And it fosters and precipitates its own results. And I hope to do it justice today on some level. First, a history lesson. What is our relationship? Um, and first of all, if you were to look at Christianity from a distance, <laughs> which I spent 25 years doing, if you didn't really know much about it, and you looked at it from a distance, like the Romans did, they thought that these Christians were uh, cannibals because of the, they were taking the Lord's Supper, and they didn't quite understand it. Why is this religion so intricately connected to blood? Why, why do we have to have blood? A religion of love, why, why blood? What's, what, where does that fit in? I don't, I'm not sure. Um, I understand the sacrifices of pagan religions over time in history, and I, I understand the Old Testament, and I, I get all of that. But this subject of blood, is, it's a bit um, unusual. Uh, I thought it was a spiritual thing to have faith and, and go to church. Well, it's also a practical thing, my friend. Uh, God takes things that he creates from, from a kernel of wheat to a fig tree. He'll use any and everything that we understand, even a custom like marriage, institution like marriage and how we get married. He'll use any and everything he can to explain things to us so that we truly can understand them and relate to them. And it's funny, the one thing we all have in common is blood. So what is, what is man's recent history with blood? This is, this is an interesting topic. Man's history with blood goes back, I don't know, if you were to go back about 3,000 years and uh, our understanding as human beings of what blood's all about, you would start, if you just looked at the Egyptians and the Greeks, the Romans, the Arabs, and the Asians, just look at those people about from 3,000 years forward, uh, even through, through the Renaissance, here's what you'd find out. Um, doctors like Humers, Hippocrates, and Galen uh, advocated uh, the, the medicinal practice of bloodletting. You ever, <laughs> you ever seen a there's, a, there's an HBO series out about uh, Adams, John Adams, and he got ill in Europe. And uh, the, the therapy was bloodletting. Leeches even at times. So obviously we didn't understand all that we needed to understand about the human body at all times in history. So we're just trying to figure this out. Well, they believed that the blood itself had four basic, or life itself had four basic elements of creation. There was earth, air, fire, and water. I mean, that was the building blocks of creation. And then the building blocks of, of the human body were basically blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. They had these fluids and are trying to figure out what role they play in our physiology and our health. And each one of these things uh, had a place with each particular organ of the body be it the brain, lungs, spleen, or gallbladder. So they, this is their observation. And they also sort of determined your personality type. This is where we get this idea of sanguine, phlegmatic, melancholic, and choleric. This is our early hospital system at work. So the treatment was, if something was wrong with you, it's that you had too much of this or not enough of that, so they would relieve the pressure and they would leave, let out blood. Uh, well, there are a couple things today even that that's actually a practice. 
So they weren't totally off, but it became a common treatment. In fact, George Washington uh, died in 1799. He had developed a fever and a respiratory disease. And the uh, way that they handled that was to uh, have three position, took copious amounts of blood were drawn from him, and he soon died the next night. That's how he perished. So, yeah, we don't know all there is to know about blood as early as we need to know it. But what is it we do know? Well, there's 6.8 million people that interface with the Red Cross every year, and those 6.8 million people donate 13.6 million units of blood. That's a lot of blood. That's a lot of cookies, a lot of juice. The Red Cross does a wonderful job, and we've, we've partnered with them on many occasions. Uh, you can give blood every 56 days, four times a year if you want. Um, every day people receive blood for life-threatening illnesses. Uh, Barrett McKim, we just had testimony about him. He, he received as many as 20 transfusions in his therapy thus far. There are four main blood types, A, B, A, B, and O, and then the negative or the positive version of E. So you have eight different types. I don't know how many of you are A, B negative, but 0.6% of the population is A, B negative. B negative is 1.5%, A, A, B positive, 3.4%. O negative, which I happen to be, is considered universal. So if you need any blood, you just come see me. I'll try to help you out best I can. I would like to spread it out a little bit, though. I had just given blood here recently. I give what's called the power red, where they take it out of your body, take the red cells out, put the, something back in there. I don't know, it seems fair. I give you a little something, you give a little something back. Seems like, it's fire, it's good. Well, I get these emails now. Your blood was used recently at uh, Northside Hospital in Atlanta. It helped somebody out. I, I don't know if they make that up or not, but it made me feel good. Um, I'm a, I was in a coffee shop in Cashers one day, and uh, they had some sort of table there. I signed up to be a marrow donor, blood marrow donor. I had some friends that went through some serious illnesses, and a blood marrow transplant saved her life, a friend of our daughter's. And one day, they called me, and they said, hey, I don't know, you in the country, you okay, you're in good health, because you're about two away from being the donor. This is a hard thing to match up. I said, whoa, holy moly, this is getting real. Well, there was a 40-year-old man who needed some blood marrow, and I was like the second closest match, and the first closest ended up doing it, so I didn't do it. It was interesting to me, though, the reality of that and how important, how important it is that you and I each have something that can actually foster or continue life or even maybe even save life. Isn't that something? And we didn't do anything in and of ourselves to, to make it or manufacture it. It was just sort of given to us through our DNA and we have it. And assuming we take care of ourselves, we have something to give somebody and save somebody's life. Isn't that something? Kind of reminds me of the gospel. I didn't really do anything to uh, deserve forgiveness or grace or mercy, yet I have it and I've internalized it. I take pretty good care of myself if I could just give it to people who'd save their life for eternity. Blood and the gospel aren't all that different, are they? What would, what would Jesus' blood be like, as long as we're on the subject? You see, the blood type is determined by both parents, mother and father. 
What if he would have been born now, and at his arrest, he went into the system? What kind of DNA would he have? I don't know. See, the blood of a, of a mother and a baby in utero are, for the most part, kept separate. There are a few procedures that can mingle those two bloods. And the blood of the mother, because the, the, the embryo has no lungs, cannot breathe on its own. The blood of the mother, oxygenated blood, trans, comes through the placenta into the baby and delivers to the baby the actual oxygen needed and, and the cells into making the blood. The liver isn't ready to handle and cleanse the blood yet, but there's a duct that God creates that the blood goes through there and goes through the body. Same for the heart. When the heart can't really pump all of the blood that's necessary in a, in a fetus, then there's a duct that that blood goes through, does what it can, moves on. It's a fascinating subject. The blood, the blood, the blood. Now, a lot of things men don't know, women don't know in science, but they learn later. Isaiah said the earth was a sphere, and man said that it was flat. We later learned that the earth is a sphere. God says, wash your hands in running water, and surgeons as late as the Korean War did no such thing and transferred diseases from one body to the next until they washed their hands in running water, just like God said to do. The blood won't coagulate until the eighth day of life. God says, don't circumcise or dedicate your child until the eighth day. Why? Well, it's not until eight days that we have a proper level of vitamin K and prothrombin. You would have to have those two things for blood to coagulate. So God knows that. Man doesn't know that. If we just did what he told us to do, we'd probably end up being a whole lot better off, would we not? So let's take a look at what the Bible has to say about the blood of Christ. This is such a special subject. The blood, Exodus 12 and 13, the blood shall be a sign for you in the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay, the first thing we learned about blood, or not the first, but one of the first things we learned about blood is that death will pass over those who have blood over the doorpost of their house. Exodus 12. Additionally, in that passage, we learned that there was such haste to get your home prepared and to get your Passover lamb prepared that they didn't break the bones of the lamb. Prophetically, the reason Jesus' bones weren't broken at Passover on the cross was for that very reason there. The blood causes death to pass over your life. Those who have become followers of Jesus Christ, believe that he's your personal Lord and Savior whose blood was shed on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, you, you and I together, death will come, but death will pass over. To be absent from the bodies, to be, to, be, to be dead, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Passover. You have no fear of death, for, for death won't even be a reality for us. See, we already have eternal life. It's not like eternal life is something you pick up after you stop breathing and the blood stops moving through your body. You have eternal life now so that in the advent of your death, the inevitable death to come, you don't experience death. Death passes over you. That's the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ. Leviticus 17 and 14, for the life of every creature 
is in its blood. Its blood is its life. Life is a necessity. Blood is a necessity for life. For we as humans, without blood we have no life. The life is in the blood. Jesus, uh, God establishes this way back in Leviticus. Let me just tell you, you don't know what you're dealing with here, but I'll tell you, the life is in the blood. The blood is the important thing. They had no idea what he's talking about. They didn't know about diseases or viruses or bacteria or, or anything. He said the life is in the blood. You know, early on in Genesis, we see uh, Cain trying to bring this unacceptable sacrifice a sacrifice without the shedding of blood, and immediately God said, sorry, that ain't gonna work. We gotta have a blood sacrifice. We have to have animal skins. We can't have vegetables, okay? We have to have animal skins. We have to have the shedding of blood to cover our sin. Leviticus 17, 11 says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you at the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So the, the, the life is in the blood, and it's the shedding of blood that covers our sin. People are taught this. As a people, the Jewish people, were, Israelites, were taught this early on in their life. They understood that you sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat seven times. They understood that there is the shedding of blood for the payment of your sin. They got that down. They got that down. Now, how they missed the rest, I do not know, but that's what they got down. That covers your sin, just like the animal skins cover your sin. To atone is to cover your sin. The blood covers the sin. It doesn't deny its existence. It renders it ineffective. It renders it paid for, accounted for, measured. Hebrews 9 and 22, indeed under the law, everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Purified. I, I don't even know purified. I, I drink purified water sometimes. I don't know about you. What's purified? Is your life purified? Are you living a purified life? It's interesting, isn't it? Do you, feel, do you have to feel purified to be purified? I hope not. I hope feelings aren't determining factors in any and everything we do because if we only can accommodate what God has done in our life and account for it by how we feel, then we're really in trouble. We feel all kinds of things in all kinds of ways. When evangelist John Wesley was returning home from a service one night, he was robbed. The thief, however, found his victim to have only a little money and some Christian literature. <laughs> and the bandit was, as the bandit was leaving, Wesley called out, stop, I have something more to give you. The surprised robber paused. My friend said, Wesley, you may, give, you may live to regret this sort of life. If you ever do, here's something to remember. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The thief hurried away, and Wesley prayed that his words might bear fruit. Years later, Wesley was greeting people after a Sunday service when he was approached by a stranger. What a surprise to learn that this visitor, now a believer in Christ, is a successful businessman, is a successful businessman was the one who had robbed him years before. I owe it all to you, said the transformed man. Oh no, my friend, Wesley explained, not to me, but to the precious blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. I, I don't really think it's appropriate or it's certainly incomplete to say that Jesus died for our sin, but we have to interject in there, we have to account for his blood. That's really what's making the difference here. It's not like he died and then we carry on. No, it's the shedding of the blood. Now, I'm gonna to get to that in a minute because if we leave the blood out of the program, what we've really done is 
We've divorced ourselves from the blessings that really come by thanking him for his blood. There's so many more things since it's a, as if it's not enough. Forgiveness and sanctification and purification. Yeah, that's what the blood does. Yes, it justifies. Yes, it sanctifies. Yes, it empowers us, but it does more. So the more we acknowledge the shed blood of Christ, the more we're probably open to receiving the products, that it, the blessings that we are intended to receive because of it. If we walk in the light, 1 John 1 and 7, we walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship one with the other. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. You know, I remember years ago, this is embedded in my mind, I'll never forget this. Our son was, um, he had a few days to live, actually, and he needed a transplant. And, and And miraculously, he was healed with the transplant. But there were all these other parents that were on the ward of the children's hospital. And they all were dealing with things equally important and dramatic as our situation. The one thing that differentiated one from the other is the way in which they handled the situation. You could get on the elevator to go down to the cafeteria and you could listen to the conversations being said between parents they they all differed they all wanted to get prescriptions some to handle the pain and the fear they they didn't some didn't know what to do they didn't know that prayer was a possibility and they didn't that faith would come in they knew they knew it probably mattered but didn't really know how to access it didn't really know how to engage. What they really needed is someone else who did know how to engage to kind of interface with them and do it on their behalf. I remember that. And then there were others, of course, who were believers. But even believers would serve themselves well to spend more time both studying, praying, and talking to the Lord about the power of his blood. The songwriters get it. They get us to sing about it. But it's powerful. It, it, is, it is so powerful. We, we've, we've taken the power of the blood and sort of like, I don't know what we've done with it, just left it there. And we've moved on to the Holy Spirit and we've, we start talking about his power. Well, I know they're one and the same, but there's something distinctive about the blood of Christ as you pray against the darkness, as you pray for your nation, as you pray for your children, as you pray for healing, there's something distinctive about it that's meant to be distinctive, meant to be addressed, and meant to be really looked at as we apply it to our own lives, our own sin, our own bodies, our own nation, our own relationships. Hebrews 13 to 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. We are being sanctified. I, I know that's a five or, well, it used to be a $5 word, now it's about a $6.50 word. That means the process of ever growing and maturing, maturing into holy, to being holy, to becoming more whole. Um, that blood of Christ is the means by which we're sanctified. Like, 
we change. And, and sometimes I think we get older and up in life and old, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. That's not true. That's denying the power of the blood of Christ. We surrender someone to their current status with the idea that they're, they're so entrenched in that behavior or that perspective or that mindset. It, what it really does, it flies in face of the very power of the sanctifying work of the blood of Christ. Think about that. If we resign someone to their status quo and pigeonhole them to that for the rest of their life, then we're actually denying the effectiveness of the invasion of and the application of and the sanctifying work of the blood of Christ. Again, we're ignoring the blood by what we say. And it's too precious for that to be done. Matthew 26 and 28, for, his, for this in my own blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Sometimes, well, not sometimes, often, we get these words that um, we use so often that we disempower them. We throw them around so often. We read about them so often that we actually unintentionally, if we don't watch it, we dilute their power. And then we dilute the gratitude that we have for them. And one of those is forgiveness. Uh, you, if you haven't figured this out yet, the generations of people, the last couple, three, four generations, and those going forward, pay attention and listen. They have little need for or desire for forgiveness. Because a country or a culture without sin has no need of forgiveness. So a lot of, you know, 20 years ago, you kept hearing the words postmodern. Postmodernism is where you don't have any absolutes. Everything is morally relative. That's how it started. Well, moral relativity basically says, for you it's a sin, for me it's not. And when you get to that place, you justify your behavior by your own theology and it's not a sin anymore. Therefore, there's many things in this culture right now that are sin, as clear as day they're sin. As black and white and clear and simple sin as you've ever seen before in your life. Where 30 years ago there wouldn't even be a conversation about it, but now we're, we're, we're having long discussions and blogs and movements that basically say, no, that's not a sin. There is no sin. And because there's no sin, there's no need for forgiveness. And because there's no need for forgiveness, there's no need for the blood. There's no need for a Lord. There's no, you get it. And the church, if you pay attention and watch, observe, is being, some, some aspects of the church of Jesus Christ are being caught up in this mindset that, yeah, maybe you're right, that's not a sin. Or, or yeah, maybe we were just... Um, I don't know, a little too old school. And what you do, once you start down that road, you now negate the need for the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ, or anyone's blood for that matter. Think about that. Which is basically, you haven't paid attention, actually happening in our world today. See, John 14 and 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, if he's the life and the life is in the blood, then his blood is important. 
It's important to the way we live. It's important to the truth. Power of the blood, power of the blood, power of the blood. We, this came up today in a song, Dry Bones. If you're sitting here today and your spiritual walk is so dry, just one spark would, would start a forest fire. If your bones, your spiritual bones are that dry, you need to get in touch with and enjoy the application of the blood of Christ, the power of God, the power of God. Revelation 12 and 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they loved their lives. They loved their lives, not their lives unto death. Man, it was fresh back then. I mean, Revelation 95 AD, I mean, ah, these words they never heard before. They hadn't rehearsed them. They hadn't heard messages. They hadn't read commentaries. They, they hadn't been to seminary. Man, you say the word overcome to a, to a 95 AD person who's oppressed by the Roman Empire, overcome? Are you kidding me? Overcome taxation, overcome oppression, overcome being an object, overcome being a slave, overcome this, overcome that? How do I overcome? How do I overcome? Well, you overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. Fresh, man, that was so fresh. It wasn't something anybody had said before. It wasn't even something somebody said and then got later corrupted. It had never been said before. It was fresh off the press, the island of Patmos. You overcome by the blood of the lamb. And boom, let me think about that because I need to overcome. How do you overcome an addiction? How do you overcome uh, depression? How do you overcome this, confusion? How do you come, whatever. Well, in part, in almost all circumstances, you can pretty much bank that the blood of the lamb ain't gonna hurt you. It's gonna help you overcome. I overcome shame, I overcome fear. What do I do? The blood, the blood, the blood, the blood, the blood. Apply it, pray it, study it, speak it, declare it. See, we know you more declarations in the church of Jesus Christ more declarations than we do decorations. We need to declare things, declare things, declare things that are true. Not name it, claim it, but declare it so that we, our own confidence, our own faith is stimulated by the very truth that we speak. What I just read to you is the last reference in the Bible to the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is, the overcoming blood enabling believers to withstand the deceptions and the accusations of Satan. There it is. The most prolific thing you'll see in the next decades ahead as we move closer and closer to the end times is an uptick in deception. It'll eventually become false miracles. That, once you get to that point, you can't differentiate between the two you're gonna wish you had really got yourself ready for that because when they come and everyone just follows whoever does that, I've seen it happen even now. When something happens out of the ordinary, the only explanation is gonna be Jesus Christ and he's not gonna be the only explanation. Now when we get to that point, it's gonna be a false miracle. False teaching is already, people are already launched, lamp, lapping onto that, holding onto that, latching onto it, embracing it. And, and then when they finally realize that they, they got taken, they come back to where you were actually telling the truth in the church and they're so 
They're so leery, they're so suspicious that you, they can't even build rela- long-lasting relationships in the church because they got so deceived. Now they can't trust anybody. And there's plenty of charlatans out there. Just turn your TV on. You'll see, not, not all of them, some are awesome. But it won't take you too long to figure it out. See, the blood and our overcoming enables believers to withstand the deceptions and accusations of Satan. There's at least 43 references to the blood of Christ in the New Testament, all testifying to its great importance in the salvation and daily life of the believer. Judas the betrayer spoke of it as innocent blood. He knew he betrayed innocent blood. Peter called it the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. And John, the revelator, called it the cleansing blood and the washing blood, stressing that it removes the guilt of our sins. Hebrews 10 and 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. There it is, confidence. This is the thing. This is a, this is a serious issue right now. Let's just go ahead and deal with it. Like I said earlier, our relationship with our Lord needs to be familiar enough to us. We need to know him in good times and bad times, times of lack and times of plenty, as Paul said. We need to have been through trials with him and been through mountaintops with him. Once we're so accustomed to having that walk with him, that friendship with him, and recognizing his voice, what he says, how he confirms it, once we have that familiarization as a friend, as a Lord, where we're walking through the day talking, not everything is on your knees, not everything's a formal ceremony, it's an ongoing dialogue. You're actually praying continuously more because you're having a dialogue with him. You know each other, okay? Maybe even you finish one another's sentences. That's what I'm getting at. See, once we get to that, you know, sometimes if you read Paul, the apostle, sometimes he sounds pretty dadgum arrogant. I got to tell you, he sounds a little bit on his high horse, like he never got knocked off a horse. But it's not that. It's, he's not prideful. He's not arrogant. Because the rest of his writing so counterbalances that attitude. It's not that he's pushy. It's not that he's arrogant. It's that he's confident. He's confident. He has such an on, three years in the desert probably helped him out quite a bit. He has enough of a relationship. Do you have, do you have a friend in your life you can say most anything to at any time? And if you had an argument, it wouldn't be the end of your relationship within three or four seconds like other relationships? We were in uh, Israel, and it was near the end of the trip. And uh, we, we had a guide who we love. He's, he's, he's not a guide anymore. He's our friend. We dialogue with him during the year, been to his home a number of times. He invites the whole group. Well, it's the last day of the trip and he said something he shouldn't have said and he said it in a way he shouldn't have said it. I mean, let's just tell it like it is. And he said it in front of most everybody on the bus. Not good. What's worse is he said it to my wife. So there was that, that thing, that thing, or whatever that was. The more you sat up close to the front, it was a bigger thing than if you sat in the back, you probably had no idea what I'm talking about. 
that thing was present throughout the day. You ever had something go between two people sideways and then it's kind of there, it's not dealt with yet? So how's it gonna be dealt with? Because we're fixing to have our farewell dinner, we're fixing to leave, we're fixing to, you know, cry at the airport and hug each other and go different directions. What are we gonna do, you know? So we're headed to the airport. And uh, he gets on the microphone to his credit and he says, you know, uh, he's went on and on about um, uh, our relationship and over the years and what a blessing it was to meet. And he had a lot of nice things to say about me and my wife, about half of which were true, if you want to know the truth. And, um, and he said, yeah, this morning I said something I shouldn't have said, and I'm paraphrasing here. And because I said it in front of everybody, I, I want to apologize to you, Angie. And then he said, you know, we've been together now on this trip for 10 days. How, how long do you expect me to just suppress my, the real person I am? <laughs> you know, because he had like a 10-day moratorium on faking it. Like we all do, frankly. And then everybody cried, and it was gone. It wasn't there anymore, and now we can say goodbye. See, he had a relationship with Angie, with my wife, with me, that was such that we could get sideways, but we would come back to fixing it. Hopefully families are that way. That's where it's supposed to start. Husband and wife, it's supposed to start there, and then we learn it there. But to his credit, yeah, he handled that beautifully. He didn't handle in a private apology, he handled it in a public apology because the offense took place in public. That is perfect. It's actually biblical. <clears throat> well, what about God? You know, you can't, believe me, I don't know if you realize this or not, I don't want to really surprise you or ambush you with a statement, but I bet you've offended him. And I bet you've sinned against them, right? And my guess is you probably apologize and ask for forgiveness. But here's the thing, by the blood of Christ, we have to understand that if a savior comes and sheds his blood, the only savior of the world sheds his blood on our behalf, that's a pretty big statement of his dedication to us, is it not? I would think so. Not just any blood, the blood of God shed covenantal blood, shed for the forgiveness of our sins once and for all. It's not as though we're vacillating between salvation every other day. Thank God for that. But, but that kind of commitment to you personally to shed the blood of God on the cross for your sin doesn't tell me that the relationship is so tenuous, hanging by a thread, so fragile, that we can't have a real conversation. Hello? like a real conversation. I would encourage you to, with God to have a real conversation. If, that, if that's nothing more than a goal you set for the next year, it doesn't always have to be a, 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 a polite, uh, well, it shouldn't be impolite, but it doesn't need to be a, a staid, staged, rehearsed, same tone of voice thing that you do in a church pew. My goodness, he shows all kind of emotion. Why don't we when we talk to him? See, this blood of Christ here is, is such that 
it states that it is for real relationship. You have to come back and address issues between you without the fear that the relationship's gonna dissolve, because it's not. Nothing will pluck you from his hand. So I encourage you, and I'm encouraging myself, maybe the Lord's encouraging us, to speak with him with a greater level of certainly reverence and awe in the fear of the Lord, but a greater level of candor. Candor. Because the blood secures the relationship, not the tone of our voice or, or anything else that we do between us. It's solid, it's solidified, it's eternal, okay? It's not hanging by a thread. Sometimes you get a prayer request from somebody and they say, I don't know, I'm just falling away. I don't know where he is. I, I can't hear his voice anymore. Yana, 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 yana. Well, why don't you just declare what the truth says? Belly up with some confidence and go talk to him. Like really talk to him. Isn't that what he wants? What does he want? He wants truth. 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 What's the truth? How are you feeling? What questions do you have? Tell him the truth. He's in the truth business. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Not with arrogance, but with confidence. We're gonna resolve this issue. I'm, not, I'm gonna have a clear conscience. Paul says this all throughout the New Testament. Clear conscience. We've hashed it out. We've talked about it. It's understood. It's not there anymore. It's not between us. You have a clear conscience. All that happens by way of the blood. And how does it happen by way of the blood? What are you talking about? I'm talking about the relationship is so solid, it's not vulnerable, it's not, it's not ready to, to dry up and float away. It's real, it's eternal. He, he was serious and he was intentional when he died for you and he's available to you every day. He's not having second thoughts about that. You, you, you don't have to worry about it, talk to him. Not in some angelic thing. Talk to him. Resolve it. That's the blood. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It's multiple applications here. The blood of Christ. There's a special, special place in heaven. When you get there, check it out. Under the altar are people, souls. They have their own uh, neighborhood. I don't know. I don't know. They have their own section. Um, they're like under the altar, right? like under here. They're set apart from everybody else. And their voice cries out. When will you avenge us by your blood? They're the martyrs. They understand the power of the blood because they died for it. And they also know the power of the blood over evil because they also died for that. That is powerful. They understand 
When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Well, in summation, as our worshipers, worship team comes, I sensed on Cairo's time, not Kronos' time, that we were in need of accentuating, re-accentuating the blood of Christ in our spiritual diet that defies death, where death passes over, that draws you and me nearer to the throne of grace, that provides a way that heals our bodies. See, to have faith that God can heal and never mention the blood is sort of a, let me go ahead and say it, oversight. By his stripes we are healed. It sanctifies, it justifies, it liberates, it cleanses, it purifies, it reconciles us to God. It gives us a sense of boldness and confidence. It's a statement of the seriousness of the commitment of God. If, the, if, if there is such a way to define that, it's so far beyond the human language serious and commitment. It's an eternal, it's not what he does, it's who he is. He's not gonna stop committing ourselves to us. We're his, bride, we're his bride. It bleaches away every spot and blemish. It helps us to overcome. Helps us to withstand the deception and accusations that come our way. The false teaching. Yeah, back then, they practiced bloodletting. And I don't guess that he was any exception to that himself. We can't hold back. We have to just thank him for the security of the relationship and be ourselves, be ourselves with him. As someone we're not, not some concept of who we want to be. We're not fooling him. We're not fooling anybody. As though, he, as though we've hidden something from him. He's not aware of it yet. We're not going to bring it up for fear that we would just inform him all of a sudden of what's happening. No, come on. Come on. We don't hold back. We remain respectful. People all over this country, 6.8 million of them, 6.8 million out of 300 million people. Let's take the kids out of the program, it's still 300 million people. 6.8 out of 300 million donate blood. 13.6 units, million units. But there's one who's shed blood. It's medicinal to all, spirit, mind, and body. If we'd have not the blood of Christ, what do we have? Without the blood, we have no resurrection. We have no testimony cannot overcome we're sick and that's the way it's going to be our relationship is tenuous at best based on our works mentality there's no personalization and commitment to the relationship on both sides but when your blood's no longer circulating and your heart is stopped does death pass you over 
Are you seen as one who's covered in the blood of the lamb? Or does death seize you and take you where you don't want to go? The blood, the blood, the blood. By his stripes, we are healed. I talked about this a, few, a couple months ago. Why the stripe? Not the blunt force trauma that left a bruise with the internal bleeding. Not a superficial laceration. The stripes, where the, wh- wound went, or the whip went deep into the, created a wound and took everything that was on the inside and exposed it to the outside. That stripe. A deep opened laceration that has inverted everything eternal and now exposed it to the outside. By his stripes, we are healed. Where does healing come for you and I? In the dialogue where the things that are even secret within us, that are secret to everyone else even, in our secret place, in our secret box, in our place of shame where we don't want to admit it or talk about it, those things get ripped open and exposed to the light with him. That's where the healing is. That's where the healing is. That's what he demonstrated, and then he asks us to follow him. I don't have to hang on the cross, but I am responsible for exposing the things that are so very deep down within me, at least with him, if I want healing. Why are there more healings in the New Testament church, Protestant church in the United States of America right now? I just named one of them. We bury what we do, and we never unbury it, and our secrets keep us sick. Second reason we're not healed is we can conjure up at the drop of a hat buckets and buckets and buckets of faith, but the faith is always greater than the love. Scripture says that love is the greatest. The greatest of these is love. Faith, open love, the greatest of these is love. When our faith exceeds our love, don't expect healing. The only healing you're gonna get to start with is an increased level of love. Your love has to exceed your faith. But nonetheless, covered by the blood of the Lamb, my friend, in whatever area you want to pray about, public or private, come to this altar as this song starts. Kneel down and have a personal, real, confident conversation of anything secret within you, even secret between you and him, is laid open to bear and ask him to heal you. Ask him to reveal to you what is within you you're not even aware of that is keeping you between where he wants you to be and where you want to be. By his stripes we are healed. And don't do anything but have that conversation and sit there and receive and worship and let the blood do the work. Let the blood do the work. Let the love do the work. Don't interrupt. Receive. 
rest, receive. Oftentimes we're not healed because we're working so hard and we never give the Lord a chance to work in us. Shh, rest, be still and know that he is God. Right here. And linger, don't rush, linger. Amen? Father, would you demonstrate the power of your blood in our personal lives? And may anything so personal that is kept from you become public between us and you as individuals, that we may invite you and give you access to the darkest places of our soul where we are in need of the blood the most. Even if it's just between you and him especially between you and him. Nothing's off limits. Talk to him personally about anything or ask for the forgiveness of having a relationship where you failed to talk about anything. This is between you and him, not the rest of the church. This is between you and him, between me and him. Amen? You're free to come at any time.